You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey everybody, it is Wednesday evening time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. How's everybody doing? My guest tonight joining us from the West Coast, author Mary Emmerich. Mary, how you doing? I'm doing well, Alex. Thanks. Uh, good to have you on here. Um, I uh, I was introduced to your work through a uh, another uh, a guy who was on the podcast last uh, last fall, Mr. Jim Kroll. Um, and I have to tell that story really quick to to the viewers because um, I just think they should hear it. But I, I he's a teacher, as, as anybody who listened to his, his episode uh, knows, and uh, I was he's an English teacher. And I asked him like, "What's a book that you wish you could teach in the classroom that?" Uh, you you just can't you haven't been able to or you would like to and and he was like wait here and he came out with a copy of uh Mary's first book which is uh, the geography of water and uh, he's like here you have to read this and I read it and I loved it um so now Mary joins us um and uh you are an author but you've also uh, worked for the forest service and you were a firefighter a wildland firefighter for over 20 years so there's a lot to get to here um and uh, I always start off these interviews with the same question. That question is, where were you born? Well, I was born in Fargo, North Dakota. But I don't really remember Fargo because my parents moved to Marquette in the UP when I was about two years old. So that's what I remember. And that's where I sort of consider myself as being born, if that makes sense. Right, right. See, I didn't realize that you spent some time in Michigan then. Yes, I grew up there in Marquette and went to high school there, and then I went to college at Michigan State. Oh, really? Okay. So, so uh, well, tell me about your childhood then growing up in the UP. Like, what were you into and what were your interests? Uh, well, I, I like to think that I lived in Marquette before Marquette was cool, <laughs> because <laughs> it seems like it's changed a lot, but it was a really great place to grow up because um, my parents were very into the outdoors, and so... Um, my dad would come home from work and he would, we would all pack up. Um, well, my mom would, would be working too then. She started working after my sister and I went into school. And um, they, we would pack up the car and we would take the canoe and we would go on what they would call an adventure. And so we would go camping, we would go hiking, and um, just ranged all over the UP backpacking. I went on my first backpack trip when I was five years old. Wow. And, um, and so for me what it did for me and it helped my writing later on um, writing about the outdoors is that it became really comfortable out there. And I didn't think that being outside was very different in terms of, you know, being my comfort level, I guess. And so I thought all kids grew up that way, but not, not all of them were as fortunate as I was. What particular, is there like a, a particular adventure that sticks out in your mind that like, like, did you have a favorite one throughout your childhood or, um, you know, any, any, what's the first one that comes to mind when you think of those adventures? Well, I think um, one of the ones that my parents will always tell and that I, I, I vaguely remember because I was pretty young at the time was that um, we canoed out to this island and I couldn't even tell you what lake it was on. I'm sure my parents could. And um, I don't know if they didn't look at the forecast or maybe a storm came in suddenly, but the island had all these really tall dead trees on it and a big lightning storm came in. And um, it was terrifying because we were in the middle of a lake with t tall dead trees and lightning all around us. And somehow we survived that, but it, 
it is something that um, I guess as a kid I wasn't really that scared of, but I think my parents were pretty worried. Yeah. Well, how old were you when that happened? You know, I'd have to ask my mom and dad, but, you know, definitely not a teenager. Wow. Yeah, that, and, and I wonder how long it will be till that experience makes it into one of your, 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 your writings, <laughs> if it hasn't already. Yep. Um, you use everything. <laughs> uh, so uh, you said it was you said you, you, it was just you and your sister. You have a sister? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a twin sister. Oh, a twin sister. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about her. What, is, what does she do? <laughs> she, well, you're going to laugh at this, but um, she is also – a, or fi- she still is a firefighter, and um, and she worked for the Park Service and the Forest Service as well. So we followed very similar career paths. Um, but she lives in Montana, and she's she's still doing fire. Wow! Does she write at all? She does write. Um, she hasn't gone the same route as me. I've really, really focused on um, traditional, getting traditionally published. But she does her own writing. Uh, and uh, what did uh, your parents do for a living when you were growing up? Well, um, my parents both started out um, in speech therapy. My my father was a professor at Northern Michigan University, and my mother um, was a speech therapist. And then, like I said, when my sister and I were young, she stayed home with us. And then she was able to reinvent herself um, a couple of different times in different careers. She worked for she was the director of the Commission on Aging in Marquette, and um, and she had her own consulting business. So I think what I took away as a kid, you don't really look at your parents as anything other than just mom and dad. But now looking back on it, my parents had really rich and full lives outside of work. It wasn't, if you ask them what they did, they wouldn't immediately say, well, I'm a professor. I think, um, and that taught me as a kid that you can still love your job, but um, you can have all these outside interests that are just as important to you. And that's what I try to do in my life. Yeah, that's an interesting moment when you you see uh, you grow up and you become an adult and you see your parents as they're still your parents and you still have that ability to sort of look at them as mom and dad, but then you also see who they are as mm-hmm. people, just as these just as a guy and a girl, you know, or a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of a student were you? I was um, really um, pretty quiet. And I worked pretty hard. I, well, okay, let me start over. So high school was, wasn't that interesting to me. I think I was kind of bored a lot of the time. Um, and then college, I went to Michigan State, like I said. And um, Michigan State was really a culture shock for me because um, my hometown was small and Michigan State was huge. And, um, and so I, I worked really hard to graduate early because I, even though it was interesting, I learned a lot out of college, I was really ready to start living my life. So I I made sure that I, you know, stayed at the, I think I had a, you know, 3.75 or something. And, um, but I was just ready to go out and do, do things. I didn't really want to sit in classrooms anymore. So I was a good student, but I was just ready for the next chapter, I think. And how did you end up at Michigan State? Hi, mom and dad. It was far away from my parents. So, no, um, <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say, and I hope they laugh when they hear that. But um, I, I just wanted to. I could have gone to, to Northern Michigan University, and um, and it would have been, you know, greatly reduced costs because my dad was a professor. But I did want to just go out and sort of be independent. And and I actually went to school um, as an English major with a writing emphasis. So at that time, I thought 
I'm going to graduate from college and I'm going to be a professional writer and that will be my career. And then little did I realize until I graduated that it's pretty tough to make a living as a writer. So that's where I went into working in the outdoors instead. Okay. And did you end up graduating early? And if so, how old were you when you, when you left Michigan State? I think I was 21 when I graduated. I took uh, full course loads and and um, and then I just kind of floundered around wondering what I was going to do with my life. And I happened to hear about a program called the Student Conservation Association. And it's still around. And it's a great organization that takes people that are in college or just out of college. And you can go work in a national park or a forest, but usually a park, for about three months. And for me, it was perfect because um, I could just go see if I if I wanted to do that. And they give you a stipend, they give you a place to live, and you can you can't choose where you want to go, but you can have some top choices. And if they decide to pick you, then then that's where you get to go. And it was a great experience for me. Yeah, that's that's so perfect too. It's like the universe just made it you know obvious. It's like well, you we know you enjoy the outdoors, and you know you've you've went on these adventures as a kid. And have all these memories. So we're, you know, let's just put you in doing it. We'll just have you do that, you know, even though that mm-hmm. you, you may have not mm-hmm. thought of it right away. Um, so uh, tell me about that then. Where'd they send you and what were you doing? I went to Pennsylvania, which is probably not where I would have picked out of every national park, but it was called the Johnstown Flood National Memorial. And not a lot of people outside of Pennsylvania, unless you're a history scholar, has really heard of it, but it was a a dam broke near Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and um, had pretty devastating consequences. There there were um, about 200, I think, something like that, fatalities from it. And so it's a very small national park. It was more of a place where we would have school groups come, and we would give them little tours of the place. And then a lot of the locals would come and do their daily walk around the grounds. So it was interesting starting out there, and from there I went on to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico and led people through caves and um, and talked about the, the history of the cave and how it was formed. And and then from there, I just started working at a number of national parks seasonally, so I would get a winter job and a summer job, and, um, and then uh, gradually went to the Forest Service from there. And so... I mean, how long how long had it been since when you started doing this and when you became a specifically a firefighter then? And how did that transformation happen? Well, let's see. So uh, back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, then it was it was um, firefighting was a little bit different. And so I worked for a national wildlife refuge. And this was probably let's, let me think about four years after I started being a seasonal for the park service, I started out doing um, nature, nature interpretation. And then I was kind of casting about for a winter job. And it's kind of hard to find one of those in the park service because a lot of the parks are in the West and it's cold and there's lots of snow and they don't get as much visitation. So they don't really need these naturalists there. So I realized that if I wanted to get a winter job, I would have to go to the South and um, a lot of the jobs are firefighting. So I had gotten a little bit of fire experience when I worked for Olympic National Park. And back then, it was all hands on deck. So if you're reasonably fit, 
Um, even if you were a naturalist, they would take you on a fire crew. It was kind of a pickup crew. They would take 20 people and you didn't even know these people and you'd shove them all together and put them on a school bus and send them off wherever to where the fire was. So I'd been on a couple of fires and I thought, well, I could, I could do this for a while. And so I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service in Southeast Florida and, um, and ended up staying there for many years. And that's where I actually got my permanent position um, because we pretty much did everything. We did all the trail clearing. If somebody wanted a pole barn built, we would build the pole barn and we fought fire. And I kind of fell into it and really enjoyed it. So kept doing it for many years. Could you tell me, I know you said you, before you were in Florida, you'd, you'd fought a couple of fires, but tell me, do you remember the first call that you went on for a fire and what it was like? I do. And I actually wrote about it in my second book, Fire in the Heart. And it was kind of one of those things where they just call you up and say, hey, can you go? And I thought, what the heck, I'll go. And so I showed up at the warehouse and you're toting your, it's called a red bag because it's red. And, um, and you're toting what you think you need for three weeks. Right then, it's a three-week commitment. It used to be, you know, it's two weeks. And, um, and, you know, back then there were no cell phones or anything like that. So you're basically out of touch with reality for three weeks. And you don't know where you're going to end up. So they put us on a bus and they sent us to, um, I'm trying to remember where exactly it was, somewhere in, oh, it was in the Blue Mountains in Oregon. So actually not very far from where I live now. And the crew boss, because you have 20 people and then you have two squad bosses and a crew boss, um, sometimes you have three squad bosses, but, um, but I think we had two. And, um, and so he kind of looked at us and he shook his head because none of us had <laughs> any experience and he was really worried about us. And actually that was my first fire and the fire blew up and we had to run from it. And I remember thinking at the time, okay, this must be what happens all the time. But actually it's not, but it was a pretty interesting baptism. Yeah. It, the fire blew up, but was that like a, a flashover or like, what was the, what do you mean by blow, blew up? Well, it was, um, the fire was down in a valley and we were above it. We were building fire line above it. And we had a lookout, but the lookout was either didn't couldn't see the fire below us because they're supposed to warn you if it starts coming up, you know, towards you, so you can, you know, make a hasty retreat. And either they couldn't see it or they were sleeping or something. And all of a sudden, the fire was really close to us. And it just, I think, the the wind changed, the temperature got hotter, and we just call it blowing up, you know, when it gets ahead of steam on it and starts heading up uphill, usually pretty rapidly. And so we had to run down the, down the, down the mountain, down to um, a road. And it it felt um, pretty frightening, but at the time, you know, things happen so fast and you just trust in your crew boss and you think, oh, you know, we're just running down this hill and this is the way things are. And, and he'll be looking out for us. And it was only later that I realized that that's not really what happens, that things can go badly really quickly and that we were pretty fortunate that day. Uh, so you say, you say that it usually doesn't go that way. How does it usually go? Well, usually um, there's actually long periods of tedium and hard work where you're digging fire line, which means that you're scraping out a line that's usually a couple feet to three feet wide. And you're just trying to 
make a place where the fire will stop because it's been robbed of any fuel fuel it has. So you have the the guys going ahead or the girls going ahead with the chainsaws and they're limbing up all the trees, taking off the lower branches. And then you have the rest of the people that are following with their fire tools and you're scraping away anything that could catch fire. And that can be uh, 16 hours long, just 16 hours of labor. And, and a lot of the time, you know, the fire is not that close to you, or maybe it is rather close to you, but there's people that are keeping an eye on it, or you're keeping an eye on it. And usually there's a lot of warning signs, and, but not always. And so that's what makes it unpredictable, and that, that's what makes it a dangerous job. Yeah, what, what, is the, what was the most differ, uh, difficult thing about that job, like in your opinion? Um, I think I would say that when I came in, I was part of the second generation of female wildland firefighters. The women before us were really brave and they were really gutsy and they paved the way for us. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But there were a lot of guys that really didn't think that women belonged on the fire line and and they let us know that. And so you really had to earn their respect by working very hard, sometimes harder than they did, um, and by just hanging with them. And sometimes they would walk really fast hoping that, that you would fall behind or or they, you know, leave you some heavy stuff to carry. Um, and then, you know, you just had to get used to a different language. And, you know, you're a man, so you've heard it before. But if you haven't hung out in male locker rooms, you don't really hear that stuff. So I have no idea so what you you're talking decide. about. <laughs> no idea. So you had to decide how, yeah, um, you had to decide how you're going to take that, you know, if you're going to get offended or if you're going to... Um, basically kind of let it go over your head. So that was really hard, especially as I got more responsibility and became a squad boss, became engine boss. And, um, and, and sometimes the guys would defer to any male that would give them the same order. I would, for example, and I was just trying to look out for people and make sure they didn't die. But, um, a lot of guys didn't like taking orders from a woman and I think it's gotten a lot better now, um, but back then it was it was tough. It was a struggle. Yeah, I was going to ask. Did you notice that that sort of attitude sort of dropped off the longer that you were, you know, as the twenty years went by? For me, it did. I don't know what it's like now because it's mostly when I go out now. I go to the helibase, which is where the helicopters are based out of, and I work with um, dispatching them. So I'm not on the fire line anymore. I think there's still some pockets of resistance, um, but I do think it is a lot more accept uh, more accepted, and it's a little easier. Um, I wish I could say for sure, but I, I I hope so because then it feels like some of the things we went through wasn't in vain. Right, right. And if you know if the person can do the work, then that's really the only thing that matters anyway, right? Um, right. But. Uh, so I I, I want to get well before we get into writing. I actually have one question, one last question as far as firefighting goes, which is I mean, twenty years in that you started it, you had all these challenges, not just you know as the actual job itself, but also doing as a woman doing in this particularly uh, male dominated industry or profession, and uh, you stuck with it for twenty years. And I mean, how how did you end up getting out of it, and and what uh, inf- what sort of uh, informed that decision? Well, I, I honestly, I loved fighting fire. I liked the adrenaline of it. I liked feeling like an athlete. 
I'd never really felt like one before. Um, I liked the camaraderie of it. And when you had a crew that really gelled, I really liked that. Um, but I think um, when I just saw things start to change and like I said before, it used to be all hands on deck. So even if your regular job wasn't fire, you still got a chance to participate in that. And um, there were some changes that started coming in around 2000 or the year 2000 or so when there were some really bad fire years out West and firefighting started to become more of a professional firefighting force where more people were hired that just did that. So I was working in recreation at the time, recreation planning, and um, my chances to go out became less and less because of that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It probably needed to happen, but it just wasn't the same as when you had a bunch of people that all worked for a forest and you'd go out with a trail crew and with the law enforcement guys and with the wilderness rangers and, and you felt uh, like you were on equal footing with those folks. And so that started to change. I also realized that I really like doing other things in the summer than breathing smoke. And <laughs> I like being able to hike and camp and, and um, stick around the people that I like. And so it was pretty gradual. It was pretty hard, though, because like with anything you do for 20 years, I felt like that was part of my identity. And so I don't like saying I used to. I say I used to about a couple of things. One is running marathons and one is fighting fire. And it's still kind of hard to say. But that's part of the reason why I wrote Fire in the Heart, because I just wanted to talk about what it used to be like, because it is a lot different now. It's you don't see a lot of the people that have other jobs with the forest service going on in fire anymore. It's mostly people that are hired specifically to do fire firefighting that do that. Right. And the fires are getting worse now. I mean, the, the ones in California last year were just, I mean, like incredible in their scale Mm -hmm. and their intensity. And uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. it doesn't appear to be slowing down. It's, it's, it seems like it's a, it's an upward trajectory or downward trajectory, I guess, depending on how you're looking at it. And, uh, and so, I mean, that's, I mean, I, not to. I, I guess I lied. I guess I have some more questions about the firefighting besides the the one I meant. I just asked, but uh, like, I mean, what what are your thoughts on on what's going on now out west and like the the way that these fires? Like, there was the one in Northern California and then the one down in Malibu uh, last fall that were just, I mean, horrific. And I mean, you had to have been watching that, and you know how it, how it is to deal with those things. I mean, what what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert. I'm not a fire ecologist, but I remember going to Yellowstone fires in 1988 and people were saying this is once in a lifetime fire. And I don't know if you were even alive then, but it was... I was two. Um, <laughs> there were, there were two. Oh my yeah. God. Way to make me feel old, Alex. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, um, that's okay. That's okay. Um, and so, but those fires were huge. They were stand replacing and um, everybody said, this is once in a lifetime and it's turning out not to be the case. And I feel like a lot of these fires are just unstoppable and the weather is what puts them out or some kind of topography that puts them out. And I think it's getting really dangerous. It's always been really dangerous, but I think it's getting even more so because as a firefighter, you want to do good. You want to go out there and save houses, even though as wildland firefighters, we don't go into houses. We can do, do some protection around them and you want to do that. But at the same time, you're faced with this, this um, people that are moving into the wildlands and building their houses there and expecting to be saved. 
And then in situations like the fires in California where, um, you know, fires were in the community and people had seconds to react. It's um, the fire seasons never used to be year round when I started fighting fire and now they pretty much are. And I don't have any good answers, um, but there's a lot of people that have more of their life invested in studying these things that, that do, but I feel like it's not a safe, a safe place to be anymore or as safe. Um, and something has to change. I don't have the right, the answer for that, but I, I have been on the other end of being under evacuation order and it definitely makes you think a little bit differently about fire. It definitely changed my perspective once I was told you better get out now. So that was kind of a, an, a different way of looking at it that I never had before. Hmm. Well, um, so last question before we get into writing, uh, but what are you doing now? You were still working for the park service and you're living in Oregon. So, uh, what do they have you doing? I actually work for the forest service now and, um, I am a recreation and wilderness planner. So I travel around the country. I work for a, a team called the enterprise team and we, my coworkers and I, um, work on different projects around the country where that forest may not have the capacity to complete the project. So I write um, wilderness plans, wild and scenic river plans, and um, basically anything recreation planning related. And that probably doesn't sound super interesting, but it really is. I get to go to places like I, back east. I get to go to, I'm going to Puerto Rico this weekend. Uh, I've been to Alaska. And so it's been really interesting going around and seeing all these different ecosystems and, um, and helping the forest out. And I still do a little bit of fire. Like I said, um, I try to fit it in, uh, going out to the hell bases. And when I'm there, it's, it's not as exciting as digging fire line, but, um, but I get to direct the helicopters and tell them where their mission is and, you know, keep track of them. And, and that's kind of keeps my foot in the game a little bit. So I kind of like that. All righty. Um, so writing, uh, you mentioned that you, I mean, you went to college, uh, focusing on, on English and, and writing. Um, so you obviously had a passion from it from an early age, but can you remember like when you first started being interested in writing and wanting to write? I, I think I, I always was, I don't remember a time that I wasn't when I was eight, I think <laughs> my mom's going to hear this, but I think I was eight, um, my dad took a sabbatical and we left Michigan in in our camper truck and drove all around the West. And I kept a little journal and I kind of laugh at it now. I think I still have it or my parents still have it because it's definitely not literature, but <laughs> I wrote about what I saw. So I always liked to read and I always liked to write. Um, but I never really thought that I could be a writer until I went to college and I started taking, you know, writing classes and I, I um, did an internship at a theater called the Boris Head Theater in Lansing and, um, and saw a little bit more about how plays were put together. And it still seemed kind of far off, like I was an imposter, but I decided I was going to try it. But then, um, like I said, I got kind of diverted into working in the outdoors and I wasn't sure when I'd ever really go back to it, but I always kept writing. I always kept writing a journal and I kept writing short stories and occasionally I would send one out and then I would I'd forget about it for a while and then I'd send another one out. And 
um, really didn't start writing longer stuff until about five years ago. And that was mostly just because of your schedule and your lifestyle. You just didn't really have the time to sit and, and, and dedicate the, the time to it. Pretty much. Yeah. I think, I mean, right now, um, I didn't, haven't always had a, a desk job. I, when I worked up in Alaska, I was in a kayak five days a week and just pretty busy doing that wilderness ranger work. And so I just kind of put it on hold, although all along um, I did publish some essays. There's a um, magazine called High Country News that I published some essays in, and I got into some anthologies, mostly nature-oriented anthologies. So I was selling a few stories to anthologies along the way, but yeah, I think it was a lack of time for the butt in the chair. I just didn't feel like I had time for that. Mm-hmm. Um what was the first piece that you got published? Do you remember that and what that was like? I I do. It was a, a, a little newspaper-like magazine that I don't think they have anymore called Passages North that was published in the UP. And I wrote a story, um, surprise, surprise, about, fi- about firefighting because I had been on a couple of fires by then. And it was, it was published in there. And I thought that was pretty cool. I don't even know if I still have it. And then I wrote a an essay that I submitted to you know the chicken soup books. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, yeah, I remember those. Yeah, <laughs> there was one for the nature lover soul. Yeah, so yeah. I published I got an essay published in there, and I thought that was pretty cool. So I just kind of went from there. And there are a few other anthologies that I got things published in. And there's if anybody's listening who's more curious about working for the Park Service, there's two books. The first one just came out about, I want to say six years ago and it's called permanent vacation. And then the second one just came out this year and it's published by bonafide books. And I got essays in both of those and they're, they're stories about working for the park service. And there's all sorts of stories from biologists and people planting trees. And it's really quite interesting. And I was fortunate enough to get a story in there. And um, some of those early stories are what, um, I used as material for later on for a couple of the books. Uh, what's your writing process like? It is very messy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do storyboards. I don't do outlines. I don't do any of that stuff. I kind of just throw stuff at the screen and see what sticks. It's not anything I would suggest anybody to do. <laughs> but what I'll do is I'll I'll just think of something idea and just write it down. And as I kind of let it simmer for a while and then I decide, okay, this is going to turn into something or it's not, or this, this is awful. And I just, and the advice I give to people that want to write, but are really don't know where to start is just write a scene, you know, think of what you want to happen, whether it's a memoir or whether it's a novel or whatever and just write that and don't get overwhelmed by the fact that you have to write 300 pages. And that's what I do. And my latest uh, manuscript that I just finished, it was so messy that it was, uh, there was stuff all over the place in there and 350 pages. I had to hunt for it and it was definitely not um, very time saving, but I can't seem to be very organized when I write. So it's definitely not something I would teach anybody to do, but it works for me. Right. Everybody has their process, right? The only way to do it is to just start, like you said, like the scene advice is a great 
great advice um, because I think that's that's the problem is a lot of people get get daunted by the fact they read a novel and they're like, oh my god, like I I really want to do this, but that's so many words and that's so many connections to make between mm-hmm. char- between you know uh, scenes and characters and so I don't how the hell am I going to do that? Um, but uh, <laughs> so uh, who are your influences then? Your uh, literary influences. Well, I I was trying to think about this and um, I always, it's really hard for this question. I always draw a blank for some reason, but um, I really like people that have been able to write about landscape because that's what I write about. I write about the outdoors and how people respond to it. And so Barbara Kingsolver is one of them, especially the book, The Prodigal Summer. Love that book. And, And then Pam Houston. And both of those two women are able to write about people, but also about the land in a way that makes you feel like you're there. So I try not to read somebody thinking I want to write like that person because you have to find your own voice, but definitely they have shown me how to put a story within a piece of land. And so that's, that's been really helpful for me. Uh, Do I have to ask you, do you, do you like Mary Oliver at all? The poet? Oh, yes. She's wonderful. I love her. I was going to say, cause the, you know, she is nature is her primary theme. Right. And I remember when I was reading the geography of water, it occurred to me, I was like, this sounds to me like if Mary Oliver wrote novels, like this is what it would be like. It would be this. Cause you have the same appreciation and the, and the ability to describe the natural world in a way that's just really lush. And yet also there's this simplicity to it. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I can't quite explain it, but uh, but that was that was just the first thing that occurred to me. I was I was uh, within like the first couple pages of your book, um, so I always wondered that. Uh, but um, are, are you reading anything now? I um, just started reading. Actually, speaking of Pam Houston, I just started reading her latest book called Deep Creek, and I haven't gotten very far in it. But it's one of those books where, and I do this with Mary Oliver also. Is you you read a line and you just you feel this combination of admiration and envy because (laughs) admiration that she could put that together, but also envy that you will never be able to write like that. Right. So so yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. Um, What are your favorite books? Oh boy. My favorite books are the ones I wrote, of course. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think a couple that I mentioned, I really like the prodigal summer Um, And then I really like um, one of the first books Pam Houston wrote called Cowboys Are My Weakness. And um, it is a series of essays uh, about her life. She was a river guide and a hunting guide. And and some of the, the men, obviously, that she met along the way, but also, you know, working in that kind of environment as a female, um, those two books will always be some of my favorites. So, um, Tell me about the geography of water and how you started writing that. And when you realized like, Hey, this is my first novel. Like, did you realize that right off the bat or was it just the sort of thing where you just wrote a scene to it and then left it and came back to it? Or uh, tell me about the process. I I didn't think, I didn't know it was going to be a novel. It took me about five years to finish. And that wasn't like sitting for five years. I, like you said, I wrote the first, I wrote the first scene and that basically stayed unchanged that whole five years. And then I just left it because I couldn't figure out how to match it with anything else. And 
I think, you know, that will always be my favorite of whatever I write because I loved living in Southeast Alaska and I loved how the landscape shapes people. I mean, a true story is that we would go around the island on our boat or in our kayaks and we'd be looking at the wilderness and seeing if there were was anything that we needed to fix out there, if there are any weeds out there, and also looking at the special use permits, which can be, you know, there's fish weirs out there, there's little weather stations out there, and they all have um, permits from the Forest Service to be there. And a lot of times it's maybe two people or maybe four people that live out there all by themselves all year, and the only way to get there is by boat or by float plane. And the reaction of people as we pulled up to to drop an anchor and bring our skiffs on shore was really varied. You had the chatterboxes that just did not want us to leave. We could barely get away from them. And then you had the people, true story, that would run and hide in the woods so they didn't have to talk to us because they didn't, they didn't want to talk to people. So that was fascinating to me. And so writing Geography of Water came out of the experiences of being on the water in a kayak for days on end and seeing all this wild country and meeting all these really unique people that were so bound to the land and how they reacted to it in, in really different ways. So there were the bear hunters and then there were the the people that were more, um, I guess, less consumptive who really were out there just to kind of get away from everyone and um, people that were still working off Vietnam. And I that book, for some reason, once I finally got going on it, it was so easy to write, and nothing's been as easy since. And um, and I still hope that it remains around for a while. It it never um, never became a bestseller or a movie or anything, but there's still hope. Yeah, I mean, Good. yeah, it had, you know, it's sometimes you know, I mean, The Great Gatsby wasn't considered you know a, a masterpiece <laughs> until after F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald was gone. So, um, so yeah, but. Uh, Tell me about publishing it. Like, what was that process like? Well, you can go two ways. You can either um, beat the bushes and try to find an agent, and an agent will really open doors for you, or you can go on your own. And this one, I went on my own. I did a lot of research about who would publish something like this, and I found the University of Alaska Press, which had an Alaska literary series, and they only published one to two books in it a year. And... I thought, well, you know, they publish books about Alaska. There hasn't been one about Southeast Alaska, so I'm going to send it to them. And I sent it to them, and I got a very nice response saying, um, we like this book, but we want you to work with this developmental editor, and she'll do it for free, which is totally unheard of. And um, and so I worked with this, this woman um, who was wonderful, and she gave me some ideas about how to maybe structure the book a little bit differently. And so I took her ideas and, and revised and revised and then resubmitted it. And um, I still remember the day that they sent me an email saying they were going to publish it. I think I burst into tears. I ran outside <laughs> and my husband was outside doing something and he thought that something was terribly wrong. <laughs> and um, I said, no, no, my book got published. But it takes forever. I mean, if you're going to write books, you should start at a young age because I'm not getting any younger. And if I was going to, get an offer from a publisher today, it'd probably be at least a year and a half before the book would come out. Right. How long was it between when they said, when they accepted it and when uh, it came out for Geography of Water? I think it was about a year and a half to two years. 
Um, there's definitely a long process um, because they, they want to release it at the right time and they have other books that they're working on and then you get the galleys and you have to do the proofread and I got to look at the cover, which is pretty cool, but it, it does take quite a long time and um, you really have to start working on something else. That would be my advice if anyone's doing that is I always work it on two things at a time. Because then you can flip-flop when one makes you nauseous. You can go to the other one. <laughs> um, tell me about Fire in the Heart because I can tell just from, you know, reading about reading your blog and, and, and uh, just even just listening to you for the past 45 minutes, You every time you bring it up, there's this real – like your first novel is your baby, right? You know, that's the one. Like you said, mm-hmm. nothing has been as easy as that. The second one uh, – you know, is, is a completely different story. My second novel has been, I've been writing it for how the hell long has it been now? I, I came up with the idea in 2012 and I started writing it in earnest in 2016. So three years now and it's, and it's still not done and it won't be for, for a while. But I mean, could you just like, so tell us about fire in the heart. Cause it, it sounds like the subject matter was very dear to your heart. And, uh, you know, the, just from listening to you talk about it, it's it sounds like that was really you, you were just super passionate about it. So, I mean, what was that process like of getting into that? And and because you said it wasn't, it hasn't been as easy since Geography of Water. What was harder about this this time around? Well, Fire in the Heart is a memoir, so it's about me, and it's always I'm not really a spotlight person. So you have to be if you're writing a memoir, you have to be very vulnerable. You have to talk about yourself and. Otherwise, you're just not going to connect with the reader at all. So you have to t- write about how you felt about things and, and, and open that up for strangers to read, which is, is kind of tough. But, um, but I wanted to write about it for a couple of reasons. But the main reason was that in 1994, my friend Roger Roth and 13 other firefighters were trapped on a mountain in Colorado and killed. And it was devastating and still is to his family and to his friends and even to people who didn't know them because they're all like a family in fire. And I could see as the years went by that, of course, we weren't going to forget Roger. I mean, it still feels like yesterday, even though it's been 25 years. But um, but the story was kind of going off into history because the young firefighters weren't even born when he was killed. And so I really wanted him not to be forgotten. I didn't want any of them to be forgotten. And it was a huge event in a lot of people's lives. So, so I wanted to write about that. And I also wanted to write about what it was like to be a woman in fire in the early nineties. And, and so it was easy in a different way because it really happened. So you don't have to make anything up. You don't have to make a plot up. But as anyone who writes or reads memoir knows, you have to, one, be very vulnerable, and two, you have to have a story. You can't just, otherwise it's like a diary. If you just, if you have, if I had structured it like, okay, it's Tuesday, I'm in Wyoming, I'm digging line again. Oh, now it's Wednesday and I'm in Idaho. You know, it's not very interesting to people. They want to know how you grew and how you changed as a result of what you went through. And so that book took a while to write as well. I don't think it took five years, but it took a while to write as well. And um, I was very fortunate with that one because one of my essays in High Country News um, caught the eye of John McLean, who is a very well-known, best-selling author of several books about fire. And he recommended me, referred me to his agent. 
So I was able to get an agent for that one, um, Jennifer Lyons, and she sold my book to a, a New York publishing company. And and so what happened then? Because that's, I mean, that's that's that must have been incredible, especially after the way that you published The Geography of Water and you were so thrilled about that. I mean, that's the next step up mm-hmm. right there is the New York scene, you know? Yes, it is. Um, what I have learned, though, along the way is that back in the day, when you'd get a when you'd get a book published, um, there was a lot more resources available back in the day. Uh, people went on book tours, and there was a lot of publicity behind you. And now you still get that if you're someone like Michelle Obama, for example, and write a book. But um, but now it's really up to the writer to do a lot of promoting and a lot of marketing, especially with social media the way it is. So. So my friend and I went out and we shot a book trailer for it, which is pretty fun, stomping around the smoke. And I did, you know, some promotions for it. Um, so that was fun, but it was, it was still doing a lot of the promoting work that I tried to do for Geography of Water. So, so there's still a lot of work you have to do, but you do get, um, with the bigger publishing company, they have more resources than a university press. And, and I, I've loved working with both of them. So there's nothing against the, the folks that don't have the resources. So, But it is something that all writers should be aware of that, you know, you're not going to get a book published and immediately get sent on a book tour at, at you know, their expense. Uh, you just finished a novel recently, like within the past couple, like within the past month. Uh, y- yes? I did. Um, it's, yes. it's It's called The Lightning Within Us. Um, uh, could you tell us about that? As much as you're willing to share, since it's you just finished it and it's not yet, uh, you're still uh, you're you're beginning the publishing process for that. Yes, it is going to be hunting a publisher. So all I'll say about it is that I wrote it in two and a half months, which I never thought was possible. And it is about the Idaho backcountry because it has to have the outdoors in it, of course. Mm-hmm. And it's about unintended consequences, and that's my little teaser for the day. Okay. So. We'll see where that one goes. Yeah. Um, and you also, you said you accidentally wrote a romance novel. Is that the same book or is that a different one? No, no it's um, the romance novel is not complete, but um, it started out as a joke. And the reason it started out as a joke is I'm a federal employee. So we were on furlough for 35 days mm-hmm. and some, some people started a little Facebook furloughed employee um Facebook page where we could kind of go on and just talk about how, how we're feeling about being furloughed. And so just to make people laugh, I started writing a couple lines of this che- a cheesy romance novel about two really different people. And I wrote the tagline was, it was only supposed to last as long as the furlough. <laughs> and to my surprise, all these people started wanting more of it. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, I guess I'll keep writing it. It's kind of way different genre, and I don't really read romance, but I thought that I'll just I'll just try it and see where it goes. And I'm also starting to work on a a series of essays about working for the Park Service and the Forest Service. I've had a couple of them published in different anthologies, and I thought that might be kind of interesting to put them all together. That's great, you know, because I mean, you've got your base underneath you now. You've got your first novel out, which is 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 great, and then you got your your memoir, and and uh, and now you've got these three other projects that you're going to be, you know, uh, putting out there. 
So um, that's that's great. And you know, the romance novel. Sometimes the best projects are the ones that you don't plan, right? Like they just because because you don't it it doesn't you don't it's not that you don't care as much, but you don't you're not like oh the scene has to be this because this is how I thought of it three years ago. You know what I mean? It's 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 a sort of like oh this would be funny, and it sounds the fact that people responded to it right off the bat is a really good sign. So um, that's mm-hmm. that's great to hear. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, you uh, you have a blog on your website that you uh, you you write on, and um, you posted um, recently. Uh, you said 2,500 or don't quit your day job. Um, could you just tell us about that uh, and 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 what you were getting at with with that title? Well, I was getting at the 2,500 was 2,500 words, and. Um, so we're all about word count because you don't want something that's too long or too short. Publishers have that sweet spot of about 75 to 80,000 um, words. And it takes a long time sometimes to get to that point. Like I said, five years with the one book. And um, I think when I started out and got my English degree, it was almost impossible to make a living as a writer and now with, you know, blogs and social media and, you know, podcasts and webinars and all this stuff, I think you can do it now, but it still is a hustle. And I feel like for me, what's been more helpful is to have that cushion of having a day job that was really different than what I, I do as a writer. I feel like if I did a lot of writing workshops and um, critiquing other people's writing while it'd be very interesting. Um, I feel like that would take away from my own creation, my own creative process. And so I think there's a statistic that only 5% of writers, and I'm not talking about the freelance writers or the people that are writing for blogs, but, but people that are writing books, I think only about 5% make enough money where they don't have to have some other kind of job on the side. Right. So, right. Um, while I would love to be able to just write full time, um, realistically, um, I need to, you know, eat. So, <laughs> well, and what's great about it though is that, like, I mean, as you go on and you, like I said, you've got two works underneath you now. In another couple of years, you could have five, and then who knows what else you're going to be producing by then in the time between now and then. So, as you get the ba- as the base underneath you grows and your audience grows it becomes more likely that that base will eventually support you at, at some point, you know? Um, so, so there you go. Helped. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there something like, cause I mean, you, you said you'd never plan on writing a romance novel. Is there a, any other genre or particular, um, you know, setting or, or anything that you would like to try that you haven't yet? Um, you know, I'm not big into science fiction at all. But, (laughs) um, but I've thought of, I've have a couple of ideas that, um, that maybe, but I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like everything I write has been so different from each other. Like this novel, the lightning within us is really different than geography of water. And then the memoir of course is different from those. So maybe, maybe you'll, you might see some science fictiony thing or steampunk or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's what I was hoping you were going to say because I was like, what would what would this be like if 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 you tried a you know like a like a, a, a novel that took place on the moon or something like? Because I know that the natural mm-hmm. world thing would still come in and the whole nature thing, but it's like, how would you approach that if the novel was set on Mars? You know, what would The Martian by Mary Emmerich 
uh, be like, you know. So uh, okay, maybe I'll 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 dedicate that book to you then. Oh, thank you, idea. thank you very much. <laughs> um, so uh, we're uh, we're approaching the top of the hour here. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to promote? Um, and just and anything. I, mean, I know we've been talking about the future quite a bit here, but anything else you got coming up in the future that uh, that uh, you'd like to tell tell everybody? Um, you know, I think if anyone feels like any of these books sounded interesting, I would love them to go take a look, whether it's from in the library or independent bookstore or wherever, um, because I do, don't want them to die. Um, and then I do have my website, maryemmerich.com, where I will post different things that are coming up. And then I have a Facebook page, Mary Emmerich Author. I don't have anything specific, no events that I've, I'm planning on right now, but that could change um, depending on what happens with a new manuscript. So just keep in touch. All righty. What are you uh, What are you working on at work right now? At work, I am going to Puerto Rico. Oh, right. This weekend, right? I, I'm going to go hike in the only, America's only, North, Amer- North America, United States, only tropical, um, tropical rainforest. Oh, wow. That right. Tropical, for- tropical forest. Tropical, America's. Only national forest is tropical, tropical forest. Wow. I think that's right. Um, and so it's really interesting, really different than anywhere else I've ever been. And they were affected by the hurricane. So I'm going to go over there and we want to talk about visitors into that wilderness and what um, what they think it can support. So that will be pretty interesting. And then I have a handful of whole bunch of other projects that I'm working on. So um, I may end up. Uh, town near you someday. All right. <laughs> yeah, me, you, and Jim will, and and uh, Jim's wife will, uh, will will get a beer or something. Um, that sounds good. Yeah, uh, I, I'll I'll end the show. I realized I haven't asked you about your husband at all. Um, do you mind uh, what what does he do, and how did you two meet? If you don't mind me asking. My my husband is a botanist, and he actually works for the Forest Service, and that's how we met. And he is. Um, also a very avid backcountry skier and mountain biker. So he likes the outdoors as well. And um, he'd be the first to tell you that he doesn't really sit down and read a book very much, but he's been very supportive of, of reading mine. So it's been great. Um, he's not someone I can count on as a beta reader. That's my sister. I always send everything to my sister. <laughs> she tells me if it's good or not. So it's nice to, nice to have different levels of support when you're a writer. Right. And you said your sister writes, she doesn't, you said she's not as quite into it as you are, but do you see her producing anything in, in, at any point in the future? Oh, I think she will. She's been pretty busy, you know, doing the fire scene has been pretty much year round. So I think once she's done with that, um, then I think she should uh, write something about her experiences because they were really different than mine. You know, she's gone a lot more into the aviation side of things. So she flies around in a helicopter all day. And, and you know, I think a lot of people would be interested in that. All right. Uh, well, Mary, thanks for coming on and talking to me. This has been great. Your answers are so precise. Usually people, I, I, I have difficulty telling when they're done with them, but you like cut those sentences off. It was, it's obvious you're a writer. <laughs> it was like perfect oh, paragraph you. answers. So thank you for that. I knew right when to come back in thank with the question. Um, but uh, yeah, so thank you for coming on. Um, hang on the line. I'll give you a proper goodbye after we're off the air. Um, but, uh, okay, you know, and, um, yep. and if you want me to read anything you wrote, send it to me. Oh, I'd I, love to see it. I will. I will. I, that, I, I very much appreciate that. Thank you. 
Um, and uh, we'll be looking for the lightning within us at some point within the next uh, year and a half to two years, based on <laughs> the what you what you told mm-hmm. us about the other two. Um, so, so uh, I will be back next week. I have two uh, young aspiring actresses that are coming on the show. Um, I had an acting class with them last fall, and uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking to them. Um, and uh, until then, everybody have a great week. And this has been American Winer on PodcastDetroit.com.